0: Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. And I want to start by reflecting on the fact that since the COVID pandemic began, many of us, perhaps most of us, have spent a great deal of time stuck at home or very close to home. And it's been hard, no question. But then at least we've had somewhere to be stuck, somewhere that's safe and comfortable and provides a base from which we can avail ourselves of jobs and education and entertainment and so on. According to the UN High Commission for Refugees, there are currently 79.5 million people around the world who don't have that, who've been forced to flee their homes, and out of that number, nearly 26 million are refugees. That's more than the entire population of Australia. Well, I'm talking about refugees today with Serena Parak, who's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston. She's also the author of an excellent book titled No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. And it takes a really interesting look at the philosophical arguments that tend to get deployed in debates concerning refugees. Serena Parek's view is that a lot of these traditional arguments ignore some of the salient features of refugee experience in the 21st century.
1: The modern refugee situation, the, the contemporary problems we're dealing with, I think are relatively recent. The, um, the contemporary refugee protection system, sometimes called the refugee regime, really only starts at the end of the Second World War, where you have the refugee convention that's sort of signed and codified by the United Nations and the signatories. And then after that, you have a refugee system that's kind of functional, and there's not an excessive demand on the system. So until about the 1980s, you have a system where the options that the international community provides to refugees and protections and so on work more or less well. It's only really starting in the 1980s where you have Western countries sort of uh, making it harder to immigrate to their countries that you have more pressure put on asylum and as well at the same time you have the advent of these refugee camps that rather than integrating people into local communities, function in lieu of that. And so so the contemporary problems that I talk about in the book, namely refugee camps, deterrence policies, asylum policies, these are really a product of, you know, since since the 1980s and then, you know, even really since the 1990s. But I think you're right, the philosophers, even though, you know, we've been doing social and political philosophy for so long, haven't been particularly attuned to refugee issues. I mean, for a long time, it was really just a subset of the philosophy of immigration. You know, we'll think about a theory of what what makes immigration policies just, and then we'll include a sort of subsection for refugees who are like immigrants, but importantly different in their demands that they place on a, a given state. I think many philosophers, when they talk about the obligations that Western states have to refugees, talk about them largely in terms of the ethics of admission, how many refugees do we have an obligation to admit to our countries given that there are these highly desirable places many people want to come here so do we have to take in all asylum seekers are we obliged to resettle you know all the refugees around the world who want a place Um, and that i think frames the problem too narrowly and it it articulates the problem as one of not having enough resettlement spots and i don't think that's a correct way of understanding the problem and I mean, we can talk about this a little bit later if you'd like. But on the one hand, you know, we don't see refugee camps. I mean, they're they're out of sight quite deliberately. They just haven't been something that's been a big part of our moral landscape. And then, of course, since, you know, 2000, we see asylum seekers in large numbers viscerally, you know, coming to our countries in boats um, through, you know, increased, you know, use of Facebook and various accounts by refugees themselves, as well as by journalists and activists who work with refugees. So we're we're more aware of what refugees are going through now, I think, than we had been t- even 20 years ago, certainly 30 years ago or 40 years ago.
0: Yeah, and I do absolutely want to get on to talk about the uh, the narrowness of the philosophical frame. But first of all, let's pull back a little bit. I mean, in your book, you write about how the Western world's understanding of refugees rests heavily on the United Nations 1951 Refugee Convention. Tell me a bit about that treaty. What were the options envisioned for refugees in 1951? And, and what does it mean to be a refugee today that it didn't in 1951?
1: It's a really interesting contrast. So 1951, the end of the Second World War, there was a lot of sympathy towards refugees, in particular Jewish refugees who were unable to flee Germany and escape the Holocaust. So the refugee conventions drafted and they say, okay, if you are a refugee, you have, you ought to have one of three options. The first option is voluntary repatriation, which just means the United Nations will help you go home once the conflict has ended. The second option is local integration, which as I mentioned until about the 1980s in Africa was the dominant way of hosting refugees. So if you have, you're have you forced to flee your country, you cross a border, which is part of the definition of a refugee, and you go to another country, Rather than putting you in a camp, they would allow you to live, you know, with them, go to school, work, use the public hospitals, etc., just become part of society. So that's local integration. And the third option is resettlement in the third country. So those were the three options. Uh, so fast forward then 50 years or 70 years, I guess, <laughs> 71 years, and you have today. And the three options that refugees have are vastly different. First of all, there's virtually no local integration anymore. That's not really an option. There aren't. There isn't even data from the UN on this option because it virtually doesn't exist. Resettlement? Oh, sorry, let me just first say something about a voluntary return. Increasingly, it's less and less likely because the conflicts that are producing large refugee displacements. Think of Myanmar, Syria, are these ongoing conflicts, making it less likely for people to go home. So in any given year, maybe one or two percent of refugees are able to return home. And the resettlement program, even at its peak, only resettled fewer than one percent of refugees around the world. So it still exists. It still exists as a Um, a dream for many refugees who have no other options. But it's never been a solution to refugee issues, even even at its best, as I mentioned, you only had a 1% chance of being resettled. So what are your options today? Uh, Your first option is a refugee camp. And in some senses, refugee camps, at least in the short term, can be great. They can provide security and food and water and shelter. The problem, of course, is that these refugee camps last for years and often decades. The average length of time a refugee will re- live in a refugee camp is 12 years. And the average length of time a person will remain a refugee, having refugee status, is 17 years and 25 years if you're fleeing war. So again, these temporary camps that are set up to immediately distribute aid, just are not sufficient to sustain people for generation upon generation. and With only a couple of exceptions, refugees are not allowed to work in these camps, so they remain dependent on the international community for food, for water, for medical care, uh, et cetera. Many people, increasingly since 2000, and especially since the US invasion of Iraq, have refused to go to refugee camps. They understand what life is going to be like there and they think it's unthinkable to live with this dependency on the international community in you know, very impoverished circumstances. So they'll choose instead to go to an urban center, um, an urban slum as they're sometimes called, or you know just to move to a city and find work in the informal economy, making ends meet, maybe living with family and friends, maybe living with co-nationals, uh, occasionally even citizens of the other country will let you live maybe in their basement or in their courtyard or something like that. And this has the advantage of allowing refugees a lot of more autonomy than they would have in a refugee camp. Uh, they're able to work. So in some sense, they feel like they're able to be in control of their lives. But of course, work is extremely precarious, often very exploitative. Wages are withheld. There's no labor protections. Housing is, you know, you can imagine what a challenge that is and often very, very decrepit. And the one thing refugees will point out over and over again as being the worst feature of that experience is that children often aren't able to go to school. And I know many of us this year have have had this feeling that, oh my goodness, my children aren't going to be in school for a year or they're only going to have remote schooling this year and they're going to fall so behind and this is going to be so hard for their education and what is this doing to them? And so you can imagine What a microcosm that is of being a parent of of a refugee child, of being a refugee, parent of a refugee child, knowing that your children simply aren't going to go to school for five years, 10 years, you know, the duration of their childhoods. That's why increasingly refugees are making a third choice. And that third choice is to engage smugglers to take very dangerous journeys across land, over the sea, et cetera, to try to go directly to the countries they would like to live in, they would like to receive refugee status in. The US, Italy, Greece, Australia, for example. So about 10% of refugees do this knowing full well how dangerous the journey is, putting themselves in harm's way. Uh, risking violence, risking rape, risking drowning, et cetera, for the chance to seek asylum. Because the other two options the international community has more or less provided are deeply problematic, and for many, just don't have any source of hope for the future. And I think this is what deserves an ethical response, the situation as a whole, and not just the one part of it which asks, well, should we resettle more or less refugees?
0: So when philosophers think about our moral obligations to refugees, leaving aside political or legal obligations, how do they generally set these out? What, what, what are the standard philosophical accounts of moral obligations to refugees?
1: I think there are three broad ways that philosophers have tried to justify our moral obligations to refugees and maybe I'll I'll focus on just two of these examples. The first grounding is what you might think of as causality. I call it in my book the you broke it, you bought it principle or the pottery barn rule, which is to say if you are connected to a, a refugee situation and you've in some way caused the refugee flow, well, you have an obligation to take in refugees based on the causal harm that you've done. So I think the causal grounding for obligations to refugees is really interesting, but it's much harder to establish than most people think of or maybe would like it to be. Take something like the Syrian crisis and the millions of refugees who have been made refugees because of this crisis. Some people think it's transparently obvious that this crisis is the result of the aftermath, if you will, of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Other people think that this is transparently false and the Syrian civil war is merely a civil war. And so I think that the lack of consensus, the difficulty in drawing this causal line, makes it a less strong foundation for our moral obligations to refugees than it might have been in other contexts. And and it may still be. It may be that there are some circumstances in which the causal grounding will be sufficient to ground an obligation. But on the whole, it doesn't help us to address the large structural injustice that I described in the previous question. A second way philosophers ground obligations to refugees is with the Good Samaritan principle. And this is made really famous, of course, by Peter Singer's pond analogy. If you're walking by a shallow pond and there's a child drowning, you know, you you would be a monster if you prioritized keeping your shoes dry over saving the child's life. And the, the intuition behind this is that if you can stop something really bad from happening at a relatively small cost to yourself, you ought to do this. You have a strong moral obligation to do this. And I think this has a lot of merit and, again, a lot of intuitive appeal especially when there's a crisis happening and we can see people who are emaciated and fleeing violence and persecution, and we think, oh my goodness, we've, we must help these people. Where it starts to become less effective is in these ongoing refugee crises that no longer appear to be crisis, but just appear to be the sort of status quo. And the harm that refugees are fleeing from seems to be less easily remediated by our ability to help.
0: On RN, this is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Serena Parik, a philosopher from Northeastern University in Boston and the author of No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. What about the ethical arguments that are often invoked against allowing refugees into a country by citizens of that country? And people talk about the right to cultural self-determination, that we have a right to shape our culture in a way that suits us and we don't feel comfortable hosting a large number of refugees from a culture that doesn't share our values. There's also the right to freedom of association. This this idea that the right of an individual to associate or or to not associate with whoever he or she wishes is a right that transfers from the individual to the state as a whole. What do you think of those sorts of arguments?
1: What I find interesting about them and why I include them in my book is so that people get a sense that there are principled reasons for why some people maybe not entirely reject refugees, but are, want to limit the number of refugees they'll take in or will come in. So sometimes I have the sense that unless you're willing to open your borders and take everyone in, you're, you know, you're xenophobic and you're terrible. And I want people to understand that there are actually very good principled reasons for why um, people don't hold that position. Now, having said that, um, what I find limiting about those views is, I mean, take the freedom of association view. It's right? so a Christopher Wellman, of course, famously argues that the right to freedom of association at an individual level is such a strong right that it shouldn't be superseded by any kind of uh, other moral imperative. The problem with this comes from, I think, non-ideal theory. Because we live in this interconnected world, it's simply not the case that every country can exercise the right to freedom of association. Lebanon, for example, if it were to say, well, right, we are no longer taking in Syrian refugees. I mean, in a way they can't do that because they do not have the, the power to prevent millions of people from crossing over their border. They don't have the political clout in the international community to sort of be able to do that and say, but we've decided we don't want any more refugees. So it's a principle that can't be universalized. And it's a principle that relies on the exercise of power. Um, I do have some sympathy with the idea that immigration and refugee intake can be tempered by considerations of culture. But my overall challenge to this way of thinking about things is to say, look, if you decide that you are a homogenous country and it would simply destroy your country to take in anybody who is not exactly like you that may be an argument that can be made in some very isolated circumstances though so even you know countries like finland have proved that you know it doesn't need to be the case but my larger issue is not merely that we are too limited in how many refugees we take in it's that we Help refugees in ways that deny the minimum conditions of human dignity to them. So maybe you don't want refugees in your country, but that doesn't make it okay that we do not adequately fund refugee camps and we do not help refugees who live in urban centers and that we create deterrence policies that are so, that make seeking asylum so dangerous as to require hiring smugglers risking your life, risking your children's life in order to claim asylum. So I think of resettlement as an important part of our obligations to refugees, but it's this much smaller part, I think, in the actual world that refugees are trying to seek refuge in than philosophers think that it is. So we can have that debate over the extent that we're um, required to resettle refugees or not. But I think there are so many more important moral considerations that need to be taken as seriously or more seriously than that particular question.
0: The focus on resettlement as the main option is a really interesting one. I mean, you write in the book about how this speaks to the sense within Western countries of being rescuers first and foremost. Can you talk a bit about that? I think that's a really interesting point.
1: Sure. Uh, the sense I have among philosophers and among others writing on this topic, is that the harm that's being done to refugees is being done by the state, their original state, that caused them to flee their homes in the first place. So, um, you know, Assad's regime in Syria, for example, the regime in Myanmar that's causing the Rohingya to leave uh, under pain of uh, ethnic cleansing. These are the bad guys, and we in the West are situated as rescuers who are asked to come to the aid of refugees. And I think the situation is much more complex than that for a couple of reasons. So it's absolutely true the Assad regime is terrible, the regime be in Myanmar, so that all of the countries that cause refugee flows are absolutely legitimately entitled to moral criticism, for sure. However, the fact that most refugees do not have access to the minimum conditions of human dignity is not the fault of their government. It's our fault. It's the result of our policies around security, around immigration, around development, uh, around aid and humanitarian aid, and so forth, that has prioritized keeping refugees far from Western countries uh, so that they don't threaten our national sovereignty and our right to freedom of association and so forth. From that perspective, our role is less that of a rescuer and more of somebody who's enmeshed in a morally complex situation. So we shouldn't think of ourselves as simply benevolently helping refugees when we feel like we are able to you know, fund them or take them in and so forth. But we ought to think of ourselves as causally connected to the harm they are experiencing. And as such, share a kind of political responsibility with other states to undermine, to pick apart the structural injustice and allow conditions such that refugees are able to access the minimum conditions of human dignity, while they're refugees, that is to say, while they're seeking a more permanent solution, either waiting for resettlement in a refugee camp or an urban settlement or returning to their home country or receiving citizenship in some other way.
0: But if we're talking about helping refugees in a way that doesn't focus exclusively on resettlement, how can refugees be helped in developing countries that, that have limited resources to adequately care for them? Because at the moment, Western governments just, they just sort of throw money at it, You know, fund refugee camps overseas with, with little or no oversight regarding human rights within those camps. So what could we be doing that's more, more effective than that?
1: I think that's exactly where we should be focusing our attention. the The neglect of refugee camps, despite the fact that we are the we contribute, we fund these refugee camps, I think, is a real problem. Um, we spend ninety percent of the funding that we we attribute the international community does to refugees who are seeking asylum in Western countries. And 10% of our funding goes towards the 90% of refugees who remain in the global south. So a tiny shift in funding could do a lot. But I totally agree with you that it shouldn't merely be to throw the money at refugee camps and let them flourish however they may. I think what we ought to be doing is two things, integration and agency. So we ought to be encouraging Integration of refugees into the communities that they're living in, either temporarily or permanently. Uh, the biggest thing that we could do is to encourage states to allow refugees to work. And the way we can do this, and this is not by any stretch of the imagination, my proposal, but these are there's there's a lot of creative proposals of how to integrate refugees into developing countries that would benefit the countries themselves and benefit refugees. And that would be a much more effective use of our financing. We could be doing a lot more by encouraging integration, encouraging sort of public-private partnerships, um, trade negotiations, tax deals that would allow companies to hire refugees in exchange for perhaps having access to European markets or something along those lines. And that would give refugees what they say over and over that they want, which is agency. So economic agency, to some extent, we can be encouraging political agency in different ways. And, uh, you know, again, just listening to refugees. You know, if you ask refugee women, what do they want? One of the things they'll say that often just simply flies below the radar for most people is things like tampons. Um, Because if you want to access the minimum conditions of human dignity, which requires going out into the public and engaging with your community, you need these very fundamental basic goods that again you might not see if you had this top-down approach and just thought, oh, well, we're funding refugee camps. That should be sufficient. So I think, you know, if, if you if you've gotten this far in my book and you think, oh, okay, we should be doing something else for refugees, there's no shortage of creative, innovative, practical solutions for things that we could be supporting that would go a long way to helping refugees. The the problem now is just that there's not the political will to do any of that.
0: Mm. Or indeed the the social will, I think that's a huge problem because, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed your book, but then I am the sort of person who is politically and culturally inclined to enjoy a book like this. <laughs> when, you know, the, the, the fact that the refugee issue has been drawn into the culture wars or but so you have this very strict binary in, in many people's minds where you're either pro-refugee which makes you a bleeding heart leftist or you're you know tough on refugees which makes you a racist. Right. It's all incredibly tedious, but it's 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 so deeply ingrained in public debate at the moment. And I want to ask you just finally, how do you deal with that? How do you get a book like yours to be read and thoughtfully engaged with by the people who's thinking you want to change? Because for many of those people, the, the very fact that you're writing a book like this in the first place means that they don't need to pay you any attention because you're a leftist or you're a, a naive do-gooder or, or whatever it is.
1: I mean, that's a great question. You know, my one of my editors used to joke that if I called it No Refuge, maybe people on the right would think I was saying, No Refuge! <laughs> and they would pick it up to read it. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Because I was writing this, intending it to be broadly read and, and hoping that it wouldn't just fall within this narrow echo chamber. So I did three things in my book that I think are different than what ph- most philosophers do in their work. Stories, data, and religion. So the preface of the book, I try to directly address people's concerns about refugees, at least as you know they were articulated around 2016, 2017. Are they terrorists? Are they sexual predators? Are they criminals? And the answer overwhelmingly is no, and and are they an economic burden? No, and in fact, the opposite. They are a net economic benefit when they are integrated into society. And then I include a lot of stories I include stories of refugees from all different situations around the world, women, men, young, old. I include stories of human traffickers talking in their own words about how they traffic people and how they make money and how they're utterly shameless about it because they know nobody really cares what they're doing. And I tell stories of just ordinary people who, at great personal risk to themselves, end up helping refugees in quite profound ways. So I think if a reader were to pick up the book might allow you to see yourself in, in the stories of the refugees or of the people who are helping them. And I especially it was important to me to include a chapter on religion in the book because I think a lot of conservatives, certainly in the U.S. context, are connected to religious frameworks. And in every religious tradition, what we see I shouldn't say every religious tradition. I look at Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And in all three of those traditions, we see a very strong moral imperative to care for the refugee for, for religiously grounded reasons. So I try to welcome conservatively minded people into this discussion by pointing out that there is, we're all kind of starting from the same premise, which is that refugees are vulnerable people in need of help. And if we can get there, then we can think and we can talk about what needs to happen after that. And I I think of my book as being a voice in the debate, not ending the debate. And all I would like to see is an ethical perspective being included in our debates about, should we resettle refugees? How should we use our funding? How should we talk about them in our discourse? Uh, And to come back to these religious commitments that are very broadly shared uh, in Western countries.
0: Serena Parekh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston, and her book is No Refuge, Ethics and the Global Refugee Crisis. That's available through Oxford University Press and will put details on the Philosopher's Zone website. And you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone. And just before we go, I want to mention that if you are a philosophy PhD student or early career philosopher who would like to produce an episode of The Philosopher's Zone for which you'd be paid, then the Australasian Association of Philosophy, in partnership with RN, is currently inviting you to pitch your idea. For more information, head to The Philosopher's Zone website, where you'll find links to everything you need. Submissions close on the 7th of November. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company this week. See you next time.